of Atlantis. Your foul species is hereby banned from the seas and oceans of the world. Any who enter the waters will face my wrath. Imperious Rex! Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. I am back once more with my buddy Kirk Greenfield and we are continuing our coverage of the Prince of the Sea, Namor. Oh, good morning, Tim Elliott. How are you? <laughs> I, I am good. Did I forget to... Uh, uh, I was trying to go for that really enthusiastic intro that Brian does. Yes. Yes. We have a long ways to go to emulate him. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we are now um, a year and a half into the Namor series. It occurred to me that there was a full stop in the, the uh, storyline at the end of issue 18 that we... Uh, we just completed last episode. Yeah, it was a, we're kind of, we've hinted at some of this storyline is coming on, but uh, yeah, it was a kind of a wrap up the Super Scroll story. And now we're moving on to, uh, and we are also in these two issues, we're kind of getting the resolution of a few storylines with the Mars twins. That's true. It continues, but I, I, suddenly occurred to me yesterday it's like oh look there was a stop at the end of one year there was a stop at the end of issue 18 there's a stop at the end of issue 25 it's almost as if there was some negotiation behind the scenes saying well shall we do another half year well will, will i be involved for another year almost like it was written for a trade uh possibly i think at this point they were they were certainly looking at that as, as a potential, uh, but they didn't get beyond the second trade. Um, as I recall, I think, I think the second trade, no, I shouldn't say it. I really, I don't remember. Uh, but I believe there were three trades proposed and only the first two ever got into print. So someplace here, um, the second trade comes to an end and I'll bet you it was at the end of 18, but I, I don't have probably, any- I thought, didn't it do an omnibus? Of Namor? Um, probably. Um, I think it's out of print. So you want to get into this? Sure. You are, uh, we are covering, I think we said we are covering 19 and 20. You are covering 19. So um, right, I'm ready to jump into this issue. Great. I have a summary right in my hot little hands, and I've learned I've learned not to write these too far ahead because they start to bleed back and forth in my memory, and then mm-hmm. I have a hard time discussing this. But we'll start with Namor number 19. Uh, again, it's an issue that I believe was priced at $1. It's titled Nine Wives, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, words and pictures by John Byrne, colors by Glynis Oliver, editing by Terry Cavanaugh, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco, Submariner created by Bill Everett. Well, the cover is a cramped full-cover picture of Namor and Namorita surrounded by identically dressed women with auburn hair. They are, in fact, nine images of the late Lady Dorma. Nine. We're, uh, we open on a page of Golden Age adventure of Namor from World War II, drawn in the caricatured style. I didn't say that real well. Drawn in the caricature of the style of Bill Everett showing a vengeful, cruel Namor dispatching a Jap sub to the depths of a trench. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that later. 
Lady Crichton has been reading this issue and remarks after the first page that it's racist and not at all accurate of World War II. It's an interesting comment by Byrne to dismiss the Golden Age stories as not at all accurate since there's no mention of the invaders. These tales were apparently not imported to England, so she is totally unaware of them. She muses that Nada, Nina has suggested that uh, she change her wardrobe to something more fitting a teen since she's been rejuvenated, and she tries on several looks from Nina's closet. As she tries on a bla black lace teddy, a summons to the main office blares off. Jacqueline runs out, mindful of her attire, and rushes elsewhere in the Oracle Tower. The receptionist secretary explains before a shocked gathering that Caleb and Desmond Mars have been in the main office for a long period without any noise or action. She supposes they could have left via a private door, but Caleb was going to have it out with Desmond. Jacqueline cautiously opens the large doors and discovers Caleb in a pool of blood. She calls a code red for medical personnel and then calls Namor on his Imperial scout ship, which is in the Savage Land, not in Atlantis as expected. Namor and his entourage are gathered around a hologram of Jacqueline as they listen to the report, but nobody reacts to her black lace outfit. Instead, they focus on matters at hand. He turns to Phoebe, who says her brother must have acted in self-defense. But Carrie explodes, but they are separated by Nina. Namor quickly fills in last issue's details, and Jacqueline reports that Kazar and Joy Meacham may have addressed the UN General Council that they intend on continuing to develop the Savage Land. Well, Shauna says that doesn't sound at all like Kazar, and Nina assumes it's the Super Skrull's hypnotic zap. She's right. Shana wants to go to, Shauna wants to go to New York and Carrie as well. Namor says they can take the craft and asks Phoebe what she wants to do. Namor and Nina will be dropped off in Atlantis, quite literally. This sets the stage for the rest of the issue to take place underwater. The palace guard report that they found no trace of Dorma's body at her gravesite, and Namor wants to go to the scene of the discovery in a cave on the southern trench. Note the use of the term trench again. He and Nina find strange devices there that Namor vaguely recognizes. A small, old, withered blue man says Namor was five when he last saw them. Namor is shocked. Cut to a decayed mansion house in New York City where a Mr. Smith says the greenhouse will be perfect. The blonde rental agent is thrilled as the house has not sold due to the greenhouse feature. He offers her a demonstration of his purposes, and some fast-growing spores or seeds that sprout and entwine her off-panel uh, apparently kill her as she shrieks. A tight shot of his pudgy face as he says it's the subjugation of the animal kingdom. Cut to Marcor, where Desmond is running through the office saying he won't let him get him. He locks himself in his office only to have the lock shot off by the Punisher. The office staff look happy to see him. Punisher tells Desmond he gambled and lost and to take his punishment like a man. Desmond distracts him until he can pull his gun and fires point blank into the chest of the Punisher, but the armor there protects him. Desmond sticks the gun in his own mouth, saying he can deprive him of his kill, and off-panel pulls the trigger. A loud bang is heard alongside Castle's stern face and a spray of blood. We take this to be the death of Desmond Mars. Cut back to Atlantis, where Vera, 
I'm not sure how to say this. V-Y-R-R-A. Vira. Vira the Banished explains that he's over 200 years of age and wants to be permitted to be buried in Atlanta soon. To curry favor, he's been attempting to clone no uh, Dorma from the remains of her body. He shows Nina and Namor eight additional clones floating in bubble chambers, nude like in the movie Matrix. One, however, is clothed in yellow. Namor is pissed that Vira has desecrated Dorma's grave and reduced her body to seven jars of mush in the cloning process. Vira says he wanted a boon and to show his skills have not deteriorated after three decades. Neymar begins to shush Vira, but Nina has picked up there's something she's not being told. Vira says she's obviously not been told, even though Neymar knows. And in a final full page, he reveals that Nina is a clone of her long-dead mother. I think I'm a clone now. There's always two of me just hanging around. I think I'm Next issue. Not a lie, not a hoax, not an imaginary story. Be here for the shocking story of Namorita's true origin, plus the tale of Vira, more of the mysterious Mr. Smith. B.B. Mars meets the Punisher, and a telling interlude with Misty Knight and Colin Wing, all in the story we could only call My Mother, Myself, or Mommy Dearest, at least <laughs> style. I like that one, Kirk. Good, good synopsis, Kirk. Very uh, dramatic. Yep. Uh, um, there's a lot of stuff going on in this issue, setting stuff up and ending things. Yeah, he's getting ready to go, go for the last downhill run of the next six issues. I, I say downhill because it's a, a a rush of activity and lots of characters that are moving it about. It is. It is. It's. It's not. He doesn't seem to be taking his time, and we've. And as we mentioned, the uh, the artwork seems to be suffering a little bit. It's not as polished, I think, as his previous issues. I think this started last last two issues we covered with this way, and the absence of the, especially the underwater scenes, the absence of the duo shade, I think, is is in my opinion greatly missed because I think it would really have elevated these scenes. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm, I'm what they are. familiar with how you apply Duo Shade, but he may have just run out. I know at one point it was a product called Zipatone that uh, that all the artists started to, uh, uh, what's the word, not miserly use, but try, to, uh, try to, to limit their use or use it even more effectively because once it ran out, there wasn't any more on the market. Mm -hmm. anyway. so, uh, well, the difference between Zipatone... The Zipatone is a plastic that you cut and you apply over artwork that uh -huh. has the dots or lines or whatever it is. Yeah. Duo Shade is special paper that has the lines. It's almost like dealing with invisible ink. The lines are there, but they're colored. They're they're hidden they're under exposed. the paper. It's a latent image. Right. Yes. So then oh, he this paints discussion. it. He yeah he paints it with a special chemical. So what. What that does, as opposed to Zipatone, is it gives you more freedom to paint your shading, so it looks more realistic and looks better. And I know the the paper is no longer made, so it's possible he ran out, or it's probably more time consuming. Um, whatever the reason, I just it just the art is not as good uh, as we've seen in previous. It's a little, and I don't know if it's if it's um, he was rushed. It just seems a little 
the ink seems a little heavy-handed, a little thick in some places. It's not as sharp and crisp as Byrne has, um, especially when he, when he does his own, when he does his own inking, a little more heavy-handed as opposed to something like Austin or Palmer or something like that are working on his stuff. Um, well, at least half of this issue that I've just summarized takes place under sea. Yeah, I could see that's where it would have kicked in and been uh, appropriate. The other thing is, um, Fern has really taken pains to establish that the Atlanteans communicate by telepathy underwater. So instead of speech bubbles underwater, he has thought bubbles. And while initially very distracting, um, you know, I think it's a reasonable thought, but I wonder if it put people off because in learning to read comic books, you begin to uh, subconsciously interpret thought bubbles and speech bubbles. Once you get the, the, the hang as a kid of which is which and which is an internal monologue and which is being spoken aloud, it's hard to break that. So when you see something like this, where they're communicating through thought bubbles, I imagine it could be off-putting for some people. I, you know, a little goes a long way in my estimation. Yeah. Made his point, but he, he seems to be a stickler on that, and and that's fine. You know, well, it's an interesting gonna, choice. What we're gonna, <clears throat> excuse me. What we're gonna find out is in, and this is in my my issue that I'm gonna cover next. It's not telepathy. It is a form of communication, but it's like whales speak or dolphins speak. It's like clicks or so they are making some kind of a sound. It's just not anything related to like human speech. It's more like, like I said, like a dolphin or a whale or something. Yeah, and I think he just drawn it to look like thought bubbles, and or maybe it's supposed to mimic bubbles, you know, because. He does, I will say, he does do a, a the shot where they jump from the Atlantean ship when he sends yeah. the the Atlant basically the Atlantean flying ship back to New York to take um, Phoebe and uh, uh, Caleb's daughter. I can't remember her name now. Carrie. Um, Carrie back and Shauna back to New York. They drop them off as they pass over Atlantis. That's a nice scene. Where they drop from the, um, you see the two of them dropping from the uh, the ship, and then when they hit the water and they're surrounded by all those bubbles, um, especially like the way he's drawing Tina or Namorita, the way she's hit the water. Um, yeah, that's how you kind of when you jump into a pool. That's kind of how you you know that's how you look. So then they they're uh, then they take off. So there's some there's some nice um, scenes in here. What did you think of uh, right now, Atlantis is so organic and, and mm -hmm. multicolored, vibrant, uh, rainbow colored, I guess is the word I want with pastels. It certainly glows. Uh, uh, so different from how uh, Gene Colan envisioned it and Jack Kirby as well, but that's okay. Do you want to go through this page by page or do you just we want just, to get a couple of high points? kind of hit some high points um what did you think of uh the op your opening page of this kind of bill everett inspired yeah the uh, one it's page uh, world war ii adventure yeah where burn has uh, he has reverted back to his more characterized style when he draws uh he can draw that way and it's supposed to be um 
Spitfire is reading these old Golden Age, which I'd like to point out that he's got these are not they're not bagged and boarded. They're just sitting there stacked in a in a pile that's going to make their value drop. So well, I think he cares. I'm not sure why the why it was included. Uh, it's a novel way to to uh, to to establish a splash page, and um, I'm not sure what he what point Byrne was trying to make, except to dismiss those stories as not in canon. Um, that he wasn't going to deal with it. Maybe it was a reaction to a letter from a, a reader. I don't know, but uh, you know, it, uh, the artwork style for that first page. Although it's supposed to mimic Golden Age stories, it looks more like not brand ech parody. Yeah, to me. exactly. Especially That's the it fifth issue or fifth uh, panel in the bottom left corner with the exaggerated forehead, eyebrows, huge yeah. eyebrow yeah. for the profile shot of Namor. Just you know, this is ludicrous, and I think that's part of the point that she's supposed to be reacting to it, saying this is ludicrous. Right, uh, and that might have been, um, that might have been the uh, he him wanting to draw in this style or to kind of mimic this. Um, he's kind of giving us a little history lesson. It shows the, you know, it does show the 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 racism that was apparent in these rampant. comics yeah, in World War II. And also it, it it explains this loose continuity and retconning that goes on in comics all the time where you insert, you know, when, when Roy Thomas did The Invaders, those were not written in the Golden Age, but he inserts them into the Golden Age. So now they're retconned. Right. So that just explains a lot. I mean, a lot of this first three pages really could be cut down because we get we get a lot with her musing over, you know, the way people treated characters back then, and she goes into a long kind of internal monologue about the uh, how the the enemy is has thought of in during war, especially World War Two, and that they were you know so they were not monsters; they were just men, even though they were our enemy. So right. she, he spends a lot of time dealing with that. And then we get a page of what I feel is kind of right out of She-Hulk of her yes. trying, trying on different clothing. Yes. Uh, Try to fit in. Just now occurred to me. I began to wonder, looking at this, first page is 1940s, um, kind of skips the 1950s, but there's Millie the model where they continually mm -hmm. are dressing in different styles. That was yeah. early 60s, maybe late 50s, early 60s. I wondered if maybe that's what he was doing, that he was progressing through the decades, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and then into the 80s with this black lace teddy, that she was literally dressing through the decades. But I don't, you know. Uh, well, I would say that pink dress with the, the leather jacket is a little more 80s, maybe. Um, and these, you know, this is Nina's closet. I think this would all be the most current styles. Um, yeah. I'm not bad on women's clothing, but I, I, I'm, I'm not either. So, uh, I do think he does a subtle job of when she's walking by and she's looking at herself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. He doesn't come out and say it, but apparently she's dyed her hair because her hair was white and now it's blonde. So she's colored her hair to try to fit in, I guess, to look younger. 
and now she's doing this with the clothes because she didn't let her hair down and she's got this kind of bustier kind of thing that I, I can't tell if it's something you'd wear to bed or if you'd wear out to a club. I don't know. But she's got the Madonna gloves on and then she gets the call about the... Um, but I want to draw one thing back here. Spl uh, not splash page. The first page where she is sitting in the chair reading. Yeah. You see at the bottom panel, she's kind of brought the book up to her and she's kind of deep in thought. That cover, it looks like Namor is battling, I can't tell, a tank or something. I, I'd have to go back and look, but I think that's the same cover that Johnny Storm is reading. Isn't he reading a Namor book and he discovers when he's in the flop house? Yes. Yes, I that's think that's right. the same cover. I'll have to double check that, but you may be right. That would make perfect sense for Byrne to have done that. Right. And the Captain America cover, which is, sorry, it's upside down. I can't turn my monitor over to, to look at it right side up. Uh, I'll bet you that's also patterned after a real one. Probably, yeah. Um, and then we Going get the, back to the, the, the splash page, uh, the, the um, namer in this tale disposes of the Jap sub in the trench. The term trench comes up. I'm sorry, he says uh, underwater chasm. Yeah. Chasm, 50,000 feet deep. You know, that concept of having a deep trench comes up later on in this issue. It doesn't seem to go anywhere, but I began to wonder if there was going to be a connection that, in fact, maybe there's a page missing here where Namor had found or swims past the wreck of an old World War II sub, you know, and that, that Byrne wisely decided to, to skip that thread and not go there. But I wondered if this was going to come back and there was going to be something saying, well, not all of them are fake. That some of this was, in fact, based in reality, but he doesn't I go didn't, there. I didn't get that, but that's, that's a, that's a, I, I think that would be a nice payoff that that happened. I, I think, think the trench several, is just used. I think there are um, several plot, not plot threads, but loose threads over the course of the series, particularly here in the, the latter third of this uh, run, so to speak, where where there are some loose threads that are still out there. And we'll talk about them over the next several issues. But that yeah. was what that had occurred to me. And I could be completely off base on that. Well, I think the trench in this case, this story is just used as a um, an area where they can, where the, where Vira, or however you pronounce this guy's name. Yes. Vira is uh is hiding and it's just in a kind of like an secluded area that's why they keep calling it the, the boundary trench i guess is the boundary of maybe the atlantean city or the atlantean area um what do you think of the scene where um this where they're kind of setting everything up and we're breaking out we're breaking the party up here where um spitfire basically tells uh, communicates with Namor and says, "Hey, you know, Caleb's been hurt and Mars is gone. We don't. We think he probably was responsible." And Phoebe immediately defends her brother, even though we know she probably knows he didn't do it. It wasn't self-defense. But I wonder if she's so conditioned, or it's more of, "Yeah, my brother is a, is horrible, 
but he's still a Mars. He's still my brother, so I'm going to defend him. Right. And it costs her nothing to say, well, no. you know, it must have been self-defense. You know, that's the default position. She doesn't know. She's not there. But it was quite a shock because I, you know, that kind of puts her in op maintains her in opposition to the other women in Namor's life. So um, I liked it. It caught me off guard just a little bit. I was a little shocked by it, too. But I can't imagine what that uh, that ride back to New York City is going to be like <laughs> alone in the Atlantean ship. That you know, there may be a story there too. But uh, well, speaking of the Atlantean ship, I noticed this earlier. They are none of the Atlanteans are wearing water helmets. How are they breathing air? Because the rest of them aren't. So obviously the cockpit is not full of water. You are correct. I had overlooked that. I, I think somebody mentions that in the, the letters page in, a, in an issue or two. It may be a case where he had intended to draw it in or to do something do it. with uh, duo shade or an additional effect, and it just slipped his mind. Yeah. Looking, what page is this? Uh, I guess it's page nine. Yeah, page nine, where they they are standing around talking to the hologram. Obviously, the air breathers are all in no distress as they're staying there talking. But there are two Atlantean crew members that are seated, looking around their head where there would have been uh, a bubble. I would think I can see where there's a gap in the uh, in the, the lines. Uh, in the line work where there may have been a pencil or where there may have been intended to put one in, and it ain't there. Um, yeah. But That's I just, had thought that. Good for you. Well, I didn't, I didn't think about it until you're so used to, because I didn't notice it, because you see the same thing on, there's another page, that's the same, page uh, 11, the top. Yeah. yeah. You see that same Atlantean sitting at a table, kind of looking back at him. He's got no helmet on. That's just before uh, Namor and Namorita jump out. But right. Page, uh, I guess it's page 10, top page when uh, when uh, Shana comes in. You can see that that's where he would have used Dua Shade. But he has just done hash marks over her whole face to show right. the shadow of the, the entrance as she's walking in from a bright sunlight into this, uh, this, this ship. And right. that's where... The differences because when you see it again with um like on page 11 where they after they first splash down and namorita's kind of looking up at namor as he takes off he's just shaded it's a heavy shading on her her arms and the inside of her thigh and same with page 11 well that was page 12 page 11 phoebe's the side of phoebe's face so these are all places where he's done traditional cross hatching or um, kind of scoring to yeah. create shadow, and it would have looked a lot nicer if it was do a shade. But yeah, it didn't bother me though. I mean, it doesn't I, bother me. It's just I didn't even register that he wasn't doing that anymore. But the thing that does catch me though is you just talked about the shading on the side of Phoebe's face. She's uh, he's turned to her and said, "And you too, Phoebe, if you so wish." And she reacts saying, "You aren't coming home anymore." And she vanishes. They don't finish 
that conversation, although there's a voiceover in the next panel where he says, not yet, Neymarie and I will be dropped off this vessel. We never hear her response. She doesn't give him a decision, but I'm certain that she... I'm sure. Well, obviously, she didn't jump out of the ship with him, so she's going... She has to go back to New York with him, so maybe it's a dead point, but it's like, that kind of caught me off guard. I was like, wait a minute, where's the answer? Well, she's still, obviously, she is still either really and truly in love with him or infatuated. She still thinks there is some possibility of them getting together. So yep. or, or that she still is hoping that he will come back to New York and they will be a thing. A and I right. Yes. And I did that too. Yeah. And I, from reading, I don't remember reading ahead. If anything about that's resolved, we get a little more of her and my issue at the beginning, um, which is some kind of revealing stuff, but, uh, one of our uh, readers, one of the people who uh, were following this, posted on Facebook saying, I, I can't make up my mind whether it's a sarcastic comment or not, but he said, ah, another loose thread that was never dealt with. <laughs> and I thought to myself, what do you mean? It is dealt with. I think he, it may have been Desmond Mars that he was talking about, but I, I kind of scratched my head and thought, what's he talking about? You know, th- th- this hasn't been dropped here. Maybe later on, but we'll right. let's look for that later on. Yeah. So we're back in uh, we're back in uh, Atlantis, and they I like their little floor graphic. I'm assuming that's some type of holographic projection on the floor where they're showing this trench where they're they're basically telling Namor where they found the uh, the clone of his wife, and so then he decides to. And I have a, I have a question, this Eric, since you are a resident weatherman. They keep talking about there's a storm coming. Yes. As deep as they are, would a hurricane or a typhoon or something like that or on the surface would it really affect them that far below? Uh, the short answer is no, it wouldn't affect them. I don't uh, think but it, Burn can write whatever he wants. Right. The gathering gloom and the storm and the angry waters. You know, this is all foreshadowing. This is building to your issue. Um, right. I was, I'm glad you mentioned that. But uh, in reality, the depth, whatever's going on on the surface, probably would not have an effect on the floor of the ocean. Maybe in the top, maybe it would affect some currents, um, but not to the degree that they're doing this right. dramatic development. Right. Uh Somebody passed up real quick, and it's just a quick word of dialogue. Neymar uh, appoints Spitfire, and I apologize because I keep forgetting her name, appoints her as temporary head of Oracle now that Caleb has been injured. And he tells her to start buying uh, start buying Brand- Rand Meacham. So that he can then put an end to all of the work they'll be doing in the Savage Land. So he's just going to do a hostile takeover of, of of Ran, and then he will just and as the owner, he's just going to put a halt to whatever's going on. I don't know if that's ever addressed again. If he ever actually buys Rancorp, maybe due to what I don't want to spoil things. What comes later, maybe that is stopped. You're right. Um, it's not developed any further that I remember. Hmm. 
Um, but it's all part of a chessboard that, that Byrne keeps yeah. all the, the players in movement and the politics between them. I mean, I think this is the most involved chessboard that I have ever seen Byrne manipulate. I mean, the FF is, has been pretty confusing with a host of characters that come and go. But this book, I stopped and counted them up. And there's at least 20 distinct characters, including villains and other people that are shown in, in flashback, what have you. That There are 20 characters that are actively involved and are being brought in stage left and exiting stage right. It's like, wow. He does. He, he's kind of created his own little uh, rogues gallery of supporting characters and villains. Although the villains seem to kind of come and then once their storyline's over, they're taken off the board. Right. Um, but we get Smithers here who was introduced oh, a couple issues ago when he was broke out of jail. And this is the plant man. I don't know if we revealed that. I don't think in the book they revealed it, but they gave his full name. Yeah. So this is plant. Man. This is plant man. Yes. Um, and he is buying a greenhouse. And then he, to your point, he kills this uh, real estate agent or, or rental person um, rather gleefully. He seems to, uh, uh, he does seem to gloat. He seems to glare, you know, be very, um, excited about her being, yeah. well, being killed. Well, we assume that she's being killed. There may have, may have been an, uh, something else going on that she's being restrained by the vines, that she was being stripped by the vines. I mean, we don't know. It's off camera. Right. She's she a... just shrieks and he's he's gloating. Note that his eyes, his pupils, uh, the irises are green. Yep. Well, that makes sense, I think, that he would probably... Um, and... In in your copy that you're reading, when he's putting the seeds in that pot, is his hand blue? Yes, uh, it is in in the scan that I'm reading from. Okay. Yes, and what if that's supposed to be a glove, or does he uh, have miscolored? I yeah, it's a blue nitrex nitrate glove. I don't. know. That's what I was saying because he seems to see his fingernails. So I wonder if you know I'm not familiar with Plant Man, so I don't know if he's using his powers or. If he actually has any powers, I don't think, I think he's just more of a, he's not a poison ivy type. He can't actually control plants, I don't think, does he? Well, yes, he, in, in this version that you've seen so far, no. But I think in a future issue where we actually move him to main stage, there's a couple of comments about how he got his powers and what he could and couldn't do and whether it truly was his powers or not. Does he have magical superhero powers? No. No. However, does have a tool that he uses to manipulate plants, to use them yeah. as tools, right. as poison ivy would use them to open a safe or to do things. But does he have any superpowers? None. None. Let me put she, it that way. She, she, what, one, she's not surprised at all how fast this thing grows. And she says, is that your business, developing fast-growing plants? Um, and it's a spore. He says it's not really a seed. It's a, it's a spore is what he drops in there. Uh, I have a, what do you think of the, uh, the resolution with Desmond and the Punisher? Um, um, um 
is this a resolution? Uh, that that well, I think we're we're quest. we're thought to believe it's the resolution. Yes. Um, yeah. A little bit drawn out. We've got the Punisher that's been brought in. I want to point out that when he shoots the lock off the door behind him, you can clearly make out at least four office staff members who are all smiling or cheering or they're happy to see this going down. Maybe they hate their boss. Maybe they hate Desmond, which I would firmly believe. But as I recall, isn't the Punisher considered to be a criminal? They he is. Be, yeah, that, They should that, be calling the cops and being be terrified of what's coming down. Well, that's my issue with this because I, I I'm a I'm a big Punisher fan and I read quite a bit of his stuff when he first came out. And this is not really. I think Byrne has really missed the mark with his characterization of the Punisher. He does not walk into. He doesn't work in the daylight. Right. He doesn't just walk into a corporate office and shoot somebody, whether they think their boss deserves it or not, you're right. They would call the cops or somebody would call the cops and he doesn't operate this way. He would, he would corner Desmond in his apartment late at night or in a parking garage or something like that. This is not how he works. And it's just a way of, and I don't know if he brought, just brought uh, the Punisher in to as a tool to get Desmond to seemingly take his own life because he was trying to take over, you know, as we mentioned in our last episode, he was trying to take a hostile takeover of Stark. Stark mm-hmm. retaliated and basically is, I guess, is crippled Mars. And because of that, that's why he was trying to steal money from Oracle to siphon into Mars to help his battle against Stark. And now he's, he knows he's at his, his last end. He can't, he's, he's kind of been caught. Um, and he's going to be, uh, he's not going to be, he's going to, he thinks he's going to, uh, deprive the Punisher of the pleasure of killing him, which the Punisher gets no pleasure out of that. That's just what he thinks he needs to do. He doesn't, he doesn't revel, uh, revel in killing people. He just thinks, well, I need to take these, the, these scum. villains off, yeah. I need to take these villains or scum off the table, and I'm going to. I, I, you know, it's just something I do. It's like taking the trash out. Um, I will say I do like the fact that uh, Desmond's wearing a kind of a stylish brown. I don't know what kind of suit that's supposed to be. It looks like it's it's covered in dots, but I think that's supposed to be kind of a wool. like a wool suit or something. He's got a very bright red tie that has come out. It's popped out of the suit. And it stays out the rest of the, the issue or the rest of the panels. Right. And it's like, he's, this guy's in distress. He's been running. His tie's popped out. And it stays out. And I thought that's a ni- that, was a nice, uh, that was a nice detail. I recall in this time period that that squared off end on a tie, that was very common at the time. That was mm-hmm. new um, uh, fashion I don't want to say craze, but it was a, I remember buying one of those uh, just because everybody else in my office had suddenly bought them because we were all trying to one-up and ship. We were all <laughs> all new employees and all trying to suck up to the boss who had one. And so we all, it was a thing back then. I had I, a tie. I, I like my, the 
Monsieur's appearance, um, if only for a, a high-profile uh, guest star, just a little featurette. I think he works real well. I didn't expect that he was going to be a continuing element in in the, the story, the ongoing story. But to take Desmond out, we always knew since the first issue, Desmond was suicidal when bored or when desperate, and that he go he's you know he's uh, he goes to extremes. What's the the highs and lows, the uh, manic depressive, right? Uh, just mood swings. So I'm not surprised, but I was not convinced that he was dead at the end of this issue. You are supposed to think that, and I buy that, and I buy that, yes, this is his death. But at the time that this book came out, I was like, we'll see. Well, it's, uh, right, you think it's, it's comic book logic, that nobody stays dead, he's going to... Gonna yeah, I was sorry. I, I was waiting for Byrne to pull a fast one, which he doesn't yeah. do. But that's another story, right? Too. Well, some of the the this was the last issue I think that you covered when he was he's in Namor's office and he's and Caleb kind of barges in and wants to know what what he's doing and he's just been he says selling off chunks of Oracle and siphoning. Uh, I don't think business works that way. You can't sell off big parts of a major corporation like you're selling something on eBay. Uh, I think it takes, you know, lawyers and documents and things like that. You can't just uh, sell it. That I mean, I know it's done for the for the quickness of the story, but I don't think that it quite works that way. Right. Uh, and obviously, he, uh, Caleb saw it that the he wasn't Desmond wasn't carrying it, covering his tracks very well. Because the, the secretary knew what he was doing, Caleb knew what he was doing, and maybe that's just to heighten his desperateness that he is yes. desperate. That's what I get to yeah. wheel the dealing, yeah, yeah, doing it fast, making deals, bad deals, fast. Well, he's so used to winning, and he and he says he tells the the punishers, "You can't do this to me. I'm Desmond Mars, the most powerful man in the city." And it, I thought it's interesting is the punisher says he had no quarrels with him when he was just doing his little fight with Stark but once he got into the drug trade he was trying to make right. money that way that's what brought his attention there but the Punisher yeah, historically went after the mob as well whether they were doing loan sharking or if it was drugs or racketeer you know whatever they were doing he would go after them so it's not I don't know if he's necessarily been fine with the white collar crime he just goes after more street level stuff, but um, again, my I, I don't mind the Punisher being here. My my only quarrel was is the way he's used and he's kind of opening too much in the in the light, and he works more in the shadows. Agreed. So, but we'll see. I, I don't I don't think the Punisher. Well, I don't think I think his job's done. We don't see the Punisher again. I agree. Um, and then we go back to um, the the cloning the cloning cave of uh, Vira who uh, who basically is is kind of he he he, he. Namor asking why he did it he's kind of like well I want to just one I want to see if I could do it just to make sure I haven't lost my edge and two he wanted to curry favor because he wanted to he's dying and he wanted to be laid to rest in Atlantis because he's been banished. He doesn't want to have to die out here in the wilderness. 
So that's kind of the reason also why he was doing it. He was hoping to. And he does seem to be genuinely hoping he could give Namor his wife back. But he can't possibly do it. And then in the process, he is, to your point, he has reduced her to about, you know, a dozen bottles of goo. That's all that's left of her. Because he used up her body trying to make all these clones. Yeah, the Matrix has come out at this point, hasn't it? No, the Matrix is 1999. Oh, okay. So it's not there. No. Um, Has Alien Resurrection come out yet? Um... I'm going to say no, I think, because Aliens was 86, and Resurrection was probably early 90s, so I don't think that's come out either, so. Okay. Well, I I thought it, I find it a little amusing to see Byrne putting these uh, nude figures in bubbles, and oh, so carefully positioning the air bubbles around them to cover the naughty bits, Uh, you know. No big deal there, but I just I I, I look for it. I can see Burns' very careful positioning of those air right. bubbles, right. but it doesn't bother me at all. He he and he used to play with that all the time at She-Hulk. You know, there's exactly. an infamous scene where she's jump roping, yes, and you think she's nude, but she's not. Um, well, let me ask you this: Do you think that Vira thought he says that he could? He couldn't, he said her mind and personality remain elusive. Uh, and he's able to create a clone within a few months. Do you think he was actually thinking he could, he says, and, th- and this comes up more in my issue, but he says, but without Lady Dorma's soul, these creatures will never be more than shadows. Did he think somehow he could clone her personality? Or I don't know what he thought he was going to do. He's perfected the body, but what was he going to? He couldn't get her, her mind and her personality, into the clone. In fact, he thought he could clone that as well. Yeah, I can't answer that. I don't know. Um, I don't know what Byrne was putting in Virus' mind. He's an old dude too. Yeah, yeah, he is, and he's and he said he's been able to extend his own life due to his own science. So he's lived longer than even a normal Atlantean. Uh, and then, it's, then of course, he, he kind of spills the beans about Namorita, and Namor quickly tries to hush him up. But then it's too late. Namorita's like, she she gets a whiff of something going on, and she demands, kind of demands some answers. Uh, and that's a, that's a nice splash page. The very last page is a nice splash page with the three of them the figures are nice. The inking is really sharp in that one. Uh, the gills are very prominent. Now that I see those, I cannot unsee them. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, as we've gone beneath the waves for all of this um, development through this issue, it, the background shading has gotten darker and darker through the entire issue until we hit this final uh, splash pages. People call it a splash page, but it's that's not, not it's the a... correct term. But uh, that's what it is. Full page uh, cliffhanger. It that's a it's a white background, 
nothing under C prior to this has been a white background. So that emphasizes the three figures floating there. Right. Uh, Which, you know, it's a nice effect. It's a nice punch to, to... it is. It isolates all three characters nicely. The bubbles work. Um, he does a good job of drawing this uh, virus as really a... He's almost like a... Even for Atlantean, he looks almost like a like a goblin or an elf or something. He's just... Very wizened. much. Um, yeah, he looks almost like Dobby from Harry Potter. Um, uh, I was thinking, uh, not Mr. McMiddle, like, but uh, oh. Batmite. Batmite, or- there you go. <laughs> Yeah, just just that kind of small diminutive, the way he's kind of floating there, and that he's a mm. pest. Um, just that calls to mind those echoes. The other thing is, when I first saw him, when he was first introduced, my mind went back to another Atlantean character, uh, and I can't recall the name except I think it started with Z, Z Zardoff or Xanax or something. Anyway, um, but I was wrong. Never mind. This is well, a wholly created burn character for this this storyline. Right. He'll be introduced and he'll be disposed of uh, within the next couple of issues, I believe. We'll, we'll see. And is he? I don't know if I don't think Atlant has ever been drawn this way before, and I'd never noticed it. But you notice how he has, and he what he has these really wide eyes, and I'm assuming yeah. that's to help collect more light because you know you're under the water; it's going to be dim. And Namor's wife has the same eyes. Yeah. And has he been drawing all his Atlanteans this way? Not the hybrids, but the true Atlanteans with these big, wide, dark eyes. Uh, that's drawn from... Dorma has not always had eyes like this. Yeah. Um, that's drawn from the initial Bill Everett concepts and drawings of the Atlanteans. They were... Blue and crustacean is the best way for me to describe it. And, and I think that that's where these eyes come from, that they are. Burn is trying to echo that period. Um, because, you know, who's actually seen an Atlantean? We have not been up close and personal with them for, mm. you know, several decades here in terms of the Submariner story lines or the, 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 the books or the various titles. There have been times when we've gotten very involved in the Atlantean uh, court and politics and and uh, wars and invasions. And then there are other times when the storyline has gone back to the, the surface world. So I think this is just Byrne establishing this is the look of Atlanteans. Right. And I, th- I think in the past, they were just drawn as blue humans. Right. They, that was their yeah. only distinction yeah. that they were. Yeah. And they had, uh, I don't think they have, I guess they have the pointed ears. I guess that's not, uh, I have always, I know he's been around before and he actually came back, but I've always felt a connection between Namor and Mr. Spock. That they, they look similar. They're both kind of hybrids. They are, uh, in ways kind of outcasts from their own people. So I don't know if there's any connection there or not, but. Well, Namor came My, first. He did, so I don't know if... I don't think Spock... In the mid-60s, when Star Trek debuted, people were writing in and saying, hey, um, are you guys aware of this? 
And Stan very flippantly said, oh, yeah, you know, he does look to be patterned after him. <laughs> well, Marvel owns the rights or something. Just, you know, good eye, folks. He just uh, laughed with them. He didn't uh, make any statements other than that. Yeah, uh, That's interesting. Well, you want to get on to issue 20? Have you got, have you got anything else to say about this one? I can't think of anything major except for the, the repeating thought of the the, uh, the chasm or the trench, uh, but that doesn't lead anywhere. Um, the growing darkness of the storm is, is foreshadowing the emotional turmoil that will uh, explode next issue. Yeah. Um, and it, I can't it, it think would, of anything else that, I, that we really need to deal with. It would be nice if, if it was something that was not... I, we assume it's a surface storm, but what if Byrne made up some type of undersea storm you know like maybe they have some type of weather weather pattern down there and it's some kind of a undersea hurricane or typhoon or something that would make more sense because then it would affect them well you did say the waters were warming and they were coming from the hidden land the misty land the the savage land land. term and so there is some tracking of that but yeah it'd be uh, nice if he made that connection but i think it's just to your point it's just meant to be a storm that mimics what's coming coming in this next issue of Fixing a Cover. All right. Get my comic up. All right. We are jumping back, or jumping back to Namor Submariner issue number 20. Uh, this did have a cover price of a dollar. Our writer, artist, anchor, letterer, John Byrne, a colorist is... Mike Thomas, who I think is a is a addition, did he is did he uh, color your issue? Oh, uh, colorist was Glenn Glennis Oliver, I believe. Okay, so with this one now we've got a new colorer. Our cover artist John Byrne, our editor is still Terry Cavanaugh, and our editor in chief is still Tom DeFalco. We had a release date of September third, nineteen ninety one, with a cover date of November nineteen ninety one. Uh, Burn was busy this month. These are the other books that came out at the same time. Comic Shop News number 231. Uh, the only information I could find, I think he did the cover art for it. Dark Horse Presents number 56. This is, he's continuing his little snippets of little eight-page stories of Next Men. So he's laying, it's called Prelude. So he's laying the groundwork uh, of his X-Men stories. He writer on Iron Man two seventy four. He he is uh, there's a book called John Burns twenty one twelve, which is a I think it's original graphic novel. He is a writer artist on that that came out, and that's a sixty four page book. It's a big one. Uh, Sensational She Hulk number thirty three. He's writer artist, and he is the writer on Uncanny X Men two eighty two. So he was he was busy. Namor, Submariner number twenty, my mother, myself. We open on Prince Namor searching for his cousin Namorita. He ran away from her, ran away after it was revealed she was actually a carefully crafted clone of her mother. See last issue. The avenging son and two Atlantean guards have searched for three days, but no trace of the young woman. The guards fear she may not have survived the turbulent waters due to the storm overhead. 
Namor flashed back to the events of the past three days. The disgraced scientist, Vira, revealed Namorita was a clone of her dead mother due to the fact that her mother could not bear children because she was a hybrid. Enraged, her cousin did not tell her the young Atlantean swims away, vanishing into the storm. Back to the present. Namor sends the guards back to Atlantis while he continues his search. Cut to New York City. Phoebe Mars is led into a basement morgue to view the remains of her brother. Last issue. The attendant assures her they do not need her to identify the body, but she needs to see her brother. The attendant opens a drawer and leaves her alone with her brother. The Mars twin stares at the face of the man who was Desmond Mars. A small smile appears in her face, widening until she bursts into laughter. She dances around the body, proclaiming she is finally free of her brother and her father. She returns to Limo, only to find the Punisher in her backseat. They have things to discuss. Across the Hudson River in New Jersey, plant creature Sethagar cautions Smithers, aka the plant man, about killing the real estate agent. See last issue. Their plan to conquer the animal kingdom is not yet ready, but Smithers assures his partner he has covered his tracks. Cut back to the ocean depths. Neighbor is able to sense his cousin and finds her hiding in a cave. Greenwood says she cannot return to home because under Atlantean law, she will be a slave or worse, put to death. Namor explains he told no one of her secret, and he tells her a story from his childhood. Flashback four decades before her birth. A young Namor witnesses his grandfather banish the scientist Vira for recreating the ancient arts of replication. His mother tells him one day he will have to make such decisions when he rules. The young prince does not understand. His mother explains years ago, Atlantis used cloning to create a race of slaves. But soon the slaves outnumbered the citizens, and they rebelled for equal rights. The rebellion was quickly put down, and all the slaves were put to death, and the cloning was banned in Atlantis. Namor tells her another story of his young days when he and Namorita's mother, Namora, fought as a team against the evils of the surface world. Namora tells her cousin she is recording her thoughts in a journal. If anything should ever happen to her, he asks Namor to retrieve the journals and tell Atlantis of her last words. Namor feels it's time his cousin read the tale of his mother in her own words. They swim to Vyra's cave, and the sea prince removes a large boulder revealing the hidden journals. He hands them to the young woman. Flashback. Namora and her husband, Talon, argue over children. Namora cannot bear children since she is a hybrid, and she knows being childless is hurting Talon's Atlantean pride. She tells him if she wants to dissolve the marriage, she will not stop him. She swims off to ponder her fate. She swims to the deepest part of the boundary trench and finds a virus cave. Was it fate that brought her to the scientist? She tells the, vanished, the banished Atlantean of her inability to have children, and he agrees to help. After a series of tests, he can clone her. Namora asks if the clone can be manipulated so she is not a twin. Vira also agrees to activate the dormant mutant gene for the same ankle wings as her cousin Namor. He creates the egg and implants it for her to carry to full term. She ends the story with the hope that someday Namor will read the, her journals and make the decision of what, whether or not to tell her daughter the truth. Namor tells his cousin now she knows the truth. She can, not, she can return home, but how can she return home? How can she live a normal life knowing she has no soul? 
Neymar explains, a soul can be earned. His World War II partner, the Human Torch, was a synthetic man, but over the years, he developed human feelings, a human soul. Neymar sees the same passion in his cousin. He assures her she has a soul. Neymar Rita accepts she is a clone of her mother, but also accepts she does have a soul and is proud to be an extension of her own mother. Back in New York, Misty Knight refuses to believe the Super Scroll used hypnosis to impersonate Danny Rand. She explains the scroll knew too many details from Danny's life. She is convinced the only way the villain could know so many personal moments mean that Danny is still alive. Overhearing this conversation as he enters the office, Tyrone King agrees. Be continued. That ends one story and sets up another. Or continues another. Yeah, you're right. The coloring is a little different in this this issue, um, but it, I find it very effective, especially as they conclude the discussion in the cave with Namorita. The mm-hmm. last panel, as they swim out, there's sunlight streaming through the waters, and it ends on a very positive note. Um, very effective coloring there, I think. Well, they've used. This colorist is using color to where Byrne was using a lot of dark inks and, and shading. They, they're, they're using color to accomplish that. Maybe it's a new color process. I don't know. But the splash page is nice that when Namor is um, calling yeah. out for um, Namorita. I like the way they've colored the shading on his hands and on his face. And here where we find what I mentioned earlier says... Um, uh, says, um, what you talk about? He, um, rather, he booms forth a long, throbbing tone that carries for miles across the ocean more, even though the turbulence of the storm which rages above him. And he later says, His name is, um, his true name is a short burst of clicks well suited to his aquatic environment, but incomprehensible to the humans with whom he has daily commerce. The language of Atlantis is far more complex than even the most ingenious human speech. So they are, he is making some type of a noise or a sound. Okay, I'll buy it. I think think Byrne is going to uh, an absurd length to try to answer a question that nobody had asked. he he does that. He will he will do a lot of it, and he do, he likes to. It's like he needs to keep it make sense in his head, and he feels the need to uh, br- bring that into his stories to explain. Because I think I feel this these two issues were solely to give Namorita a backstory, which. I, I don't really know anything about her, so I don't know what her true backstory is. Right. If it needed to be changed or if there was no backstory. So he's giving her one. And it seems like Vira was created solely to be a, a cloning scientist so that he can reveal that Namorita is a clone of Namora. Um, and explain... And they goes to a lot of length to explain her ankle wings that... When in the past, when he's examining Namora, that she has 
she doesn't have the ankle wings of her of her cousin, but the gene is there, and he decides that he can activate it so that her daughter will have the ankle wings, and also explains why they don't look exactly alike. Basically, it's it's a clone, but he he says he. Uh, He changes her uh, her. He basically changes her body style. So she's not. If you put them side by side, they wouldn't be an exact duplicate of each other. So right. I don't know if that how that makes her a clone. I guess it does, but um, and that's I don't know if again is this a story that needed to be told? Is it just uh, um? Because I read up on, I didn't know anything about Nomura, anything at all. And I guess she was around in the, the 40s and 50s. And she started out with blue skin, and then it faded or became Caucasian, or more like Namor. And, but she never had the wings. And then they, I guess, I guess in the, in the I couldn't find a lot on this, the issues, but she did fight alongside Namor and they were fighting like mobsters and just common criminals and things like that. Right. Uh, and I think she's now active in the current Marvel universe. She was, she thought to have died. Somebody poisoned her. She thought she died. They encased her in an ice coffin and Namor found her years and years later. So that's how she was able to, um, kind of, she was like suspended animation, so I think she's still active in the current comics. Hmm. But I know nothing, nothing about her at all. Um, yeah, I'm pretty blank on her, except vaguely aware that she existed in the background. I'm not sure that I even recognize that she wasn't named Marita. I thought they were the same character until this story dropped. So it's like, you know. Yeah, we kind of saw her in issue, the Invaders issues, like what, 10, 11, 12, where we see her with the Invaders. So it's implied that she was fighting alongside. I think that's when, in his delusions or delirium in those issues, he thinks it's his cousin. Right. Which apparently is, they say they are not uh, blood related because apparently. Uh, Namora's father was adopted into the royal family. So there is no blood kin between Namor and Namora and Namorita. So they they call each other cousin, but there's no blood relation there. Well, as we've discussed before, it's it's much like the Hawaiians refer to everybody on the island as their brother. Right. Right. Um, what do you think of the way Byrne draws Kid Namor? Say again, his Namor? Kid Namor. Oh, the young, young, like the five-year-old. Flashbacks. Yeah. Well, I think he does a good job of, uh, yeah. of de-aging him. I know some people complain that he doesn't seem to do a very good child figure, but I think it works perfectly. Um, he's got that scrawniness of a of a pre-adolescent kid, I think it works really well. And it sows a seed here about learning how to be firm when you're a leader 
Um, this, that's going to pay off in the next issue, right? As they tie up this this clone storyline once and for all, uh, it's pretty much concluded here. But there's a coda in the next issue. Uh, I like it. Uh, note that his trunks are red. That that kept throwing me off. I forgot that he had red trunks when he first kind of showed up. Well, uh, never really got a great explanation of why they changed, but somebody in Silver Age Marvel decided the green made more sense than well, red. It's just supposed to be a back and yeah. forth. Uh, and and there's the whole cloning thing too. I don't. He's get. I, he. I guess he feels the need to give us a little backstory on the that. Atlantis created a race of clones to kind of do all their, I guess, manual work or whatever. And because at first they started just cloning, um, I guess, for food. They thought that they could increase the food supply, but then they, long before they conceived the notion of using Chiral's process to create a race of slaves, and then the slaves um, rebelled, and then the, the, I think it's uh, his great 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 grandfather had no choice but to order all of the clones destroyed, and what he calls, what does Namorita call it, the uh, Knight of the Long Spears, mm-hmm. and that's got to be a reference to the Knight of the Long Knives, yeah, Nazi Germany. So, and that's it's a little bit of. You know something that probably Atlantis would not would prefer nobody know about. You know, right? It's a little bit like um, on Star Trek. If you watch the first season of Picard, spoilers: yeah. first season of Picard, or if you plan on watching it, the the Federation had banned um, artificial intelligence. They had banned cybernetics. So you couldn't have any robots like Data. And I think uh, he does a I think he does a good job of de-aging Namor when he's uh in the flashbacks where he is with Namora. It's a it looks obviously this is like the probably supposed to be the the forties and fifties. I would think that Cape would slow down her swimming, but that's true. But she is a princess; that's the royal cape. True, but Namor never wears that. He just he just basically want to run around in his in his underwear. He he's been depicted with it on occasion, but no, he doesn't swim around with it. He sheds no. it pretty quick. Uh, Namorita has also got a red cape, and you know. Seeing her swim around and the two of them doing their adventures, I immediately thought of Supergirl. It does look a lot like Supergirl, doesn't it? But yeah, just that was just kind of fleeting. Uh, when they do the flashback picture of of the clones, what have you? Um, there's a guy wearing the crown of Atlantis that, as I recall, we never saw until. I think it was Submariner number one in 1968, uh, but I could be mistaken. It may have appeared elsewhere beforehand. But um, I love that golden crown. 
that the guy's wearing. I'm trying to find the page number here as I scroll about. 16, I think. That's where you see. That's uh, the, old, the old gentleman, yes. And then, aha, okay. As we get to 17, the first page where the um, first panel where the um, clones are rebelling or the judgment is being made, we mm -hmm. have not only this, the, the trident of Neptune, but also whoever this blue-skinned guy in the foreground is uh, that looks so much like Namor, pointed chin, raised eyebrow, mm -hmm. that uh, that crown is, is um, it's nice to see it. It looks very metallic, very golden. I like it a great deal. Is that ever shown when, because we see during the FF's run, we see Namor on his in his Atlant because doesn't he take back rulership of Atlantis during F Lee F and Kirby's F run? I don't recall. Uh, I just don't recall. It's a little before my time. If I bothered yeah. to do some research, I could come up with an answer for you, but I don't yeah. know. It's interesting. Well, if anybody's out there listening, may, let us know. It may show up in a panel or two, but yeah. it's not a significant feature um, that I recall until we see it. Uh, in, in his solo book. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, it's not a major thing. It's just an accoutrement. It's just the, the outfit. Yeah. I wanted to. Are, are we almost done with this tale? I want to point out something at the yeah. end. No, go ahead. Jump. We jump around. Jumping around. The, uh, I like, I really like the underscoring of the Human Torch, the original Human Torch, and the fact that Namor says he developed a soul. He became as sensitive as any of us. I really, really liked that. That was a brilliant move on, on Burns' part. Last page, which is numbered 30, and again, they're numbering every page in the comic book here, uh, the ad pages as well. That's why the numbering of the pages kind of jumped mm -hmm. around a whole lot during this time period. But page 30 is uh, kind of a sepia-colored um, elsewhere. We go to uh, the Misty Night calling wing uh, office, I believe, where they're debating whether or not uh, the Super Skrull had zapped uh, Misty. And he says, she says, no, no, he did not. And she's sitting behind her desk. Her shoes are off. And obviously she's got her right hand curled around a drink. Her left arm is missing. Okay? You see the mm -hmm. panel? It's number two. Which arm is bionic? I thought in earlier depictions, it was the other way around. I thought that it was her right arm that had been removed, and her left arm was bionic. I'd have to go back and look. But it's there is, but you but, see behind her, there is a yes. box that says caution bionics. Right, so it's clear that she's got a replacement, or she's arm. about to get a replacement. And right. it's not that big a deal, but... Just in the back of my mind, the comparisons with the uh, Winter Soldier having lost an arm made me wonder, have they both lost the, the same arm, the same side, or are they reversed? Would they make an interesting pair? I don't know. It's not important. It's just a fanboy's musing here. The other thing is, right when we come to the end, this big black dude comes through the door in a purple trench coat. And he says, this would be of interest to Tyrone King. 
I had no idea who Tyrone King was. Are you familiar with him? I am not. I, I know he's a character from, I think, Iron Fist Power Man as he's a antagonist, but I don't. I know nothing about him at all. Um, well, later on, they'll establish the relationship or that there was a relationship between uh, Misty and him. I don't know the story well enough at all. I'm, I'm really uh, not educated in Iron Fist, but I have at least enough of an interest because of Burns playing with the character that I'm intrigued enough to go back and, and learn some things. Like, who is Tyrone King? And when did he come into the mix? And uh, when did Misty show up? And <clears throat> what happened to their relationship? It's not all going to be played out here in the Namor book, but maybe over in Iron Fist. As I told you privately, I stumbled on the fact that I have an essential Iron Fist volume in black and white that covers his debut in, I don't know, Marvel premiere, and then his solo book, Iron Fist 1 through 15. Mm -hmm. I vaguely remember 14, 15 coming out on the, uh, at my local comic book shop, and I remember the last issue, I think it's 15 guest stars, the X-Men, I remember picking that up and flipping through and going, well, that's interesting. They're cross-pollinating and putting it back down on the, <laughs> the, the rack without buying it. Because as I recall, that was, a, well, that's where I saw it. I saw it in a comic book shop. I never saw it on a spin yeah. rack. I've got... During this time period, some books were, in fact, newsstand distribution, and an increasing number of them were comic shop only release. And I have forgotten which ones were which, but I think that was true of Dazzler. I think it was true of Iron Fist. Um, several miniseries you could only get through comic book shops. They were supporting that that uh, outlet because that was clearly the future. Yeah. All I remember is there used to be, when I was collecting, you could tell the difference between, I think, newsstand and comic, a comic shop was that the, the comic shops would have a barcode. They had a Spider-Man face, and I think newsstands had a barcode. Correct. And that's the difference. But, uh, also, yeah. prior to that, there was something over the shape of the, uh, the price box. In the upper left corner box, uh, there was something about diamonds or squares uh, or circles. I can't recall what it was, but that was another way that you could tell yeah. you could, on the shape of that box. But that's yeah. not um, I agree. I, I like the, the bit with the torch, um, especially that panel where you see Cap and he's got his arms around the, um, the torch and Namor, and yeah. which I think is the, the the whole idea of you don't get into we don't get into uh, anything that we know about Atlantean. Um, mythology or their religion you mean obviously they they pray to poseidon but name or the fact that she thinks she has no clone or she no clone she think as a clone she has no soul um and namor admits that he doesn't know he says he doesn't know enough about um human mythology human religion um Says surface humans believe themselves to be born with souls, 
uh, I'd have too little knowledge of the theology to debate that point with him. And, but he basically explains to her that you, maybe you're not born with a soul, but you can, he says you can earn one. And that's what his, his example with the human torch is. He's a completely synthetic person, but he earned his soul by developing human emotions and empathy and becoming more human. It's kind of what, uh, it's kind of what data was always striving for, right? You know, they would argue, does data have a soul? Is he human? And I think that you can tell that is it the great panel where she is really her, her face is turned down when he's trying to tell her that, um, he said, if you had no soul, then why would there be a yawning chasm at the center of your being? You know, if you had no soul, you would not be so stressed out about this. And you can see that it really is concerning her. And then to your point at the end where he basically tells her, no, you've got a soul, you know, embrace who you are. And that's when they, they swim up into the, the sunlight and he's smiling and she's smiling and she's basically, she feels like she knows who she is. And that's kind of where our story ends before we have a little epilogue with the, with Misty Knight. But did you think that all this, that he, all this time he spends talking about activating this mutant gene, uh, and Namora so that her daughter will have the ankle wings. I thought that was some way that they were going to get Namor's wings back. But I don't think that pays off. No, it's done another way. And yeah. once we get there, we'll have a couple of comments about that. But, uh, but that would have been a nice way to, you know, what if Virus said, you know, yeah, I can, Namor, I, can I can fix you. I can restore your, your yeah. uh, wings to you. I wondered if that's where that was going too. But uh, it didn't we go there. Yeah, we didn't got anything out of that. I got one other thing about uh, Phoebe Mars, the long, silent sequence where she's sitting there contemplating in front of her her uh, brother's body. Um, I was fully expecting that either she was going to have a schizophrenic break there uh, with the loss of her brother, but the fact that she reacts by laughing and dancing and cheering that just caught me completely off guard and fit really well. I liked it so much, but I was still waiting for the fact that she was in front of his body, uh, his corpse. I was expecting this to tie into the, um, the question of where's Iron Fist and where's the body, where's the corpse. I was thinking that these were going to be tied together somehow that, that, uh, his, that, that Desmond Mars's body was going to be revealed to be missing, much as Danny Rand's body was missing. I thought this was all going to get tied together, but it didn't. I, I, I think we don't see him, Desmond Mars, again. I think this is we it. Will. Oh, we will? Yep. Spoiler, right. you will. Right. Um, but I'm not going to say anything more than that because we're don't at the end of for me. episode. Well, we had established throughout these 20 issues that she was felt kind of her whole life kind of under the thumb by her father. And then when their father passed, then by her brother. So she's felt like she's always kind of been controlled and held in place. And now she is 
finally free to do, I guess, whatever she wants to do. Of course, I think Mars Corp is 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 wrecked as a company, so I don't know what she's gonna uh, what she's gonna go back to. And I don't, I, I had to re I can't remember reading ahead what the um, the or her dealings with the Punisher are. I don't know because he's sitting in her limo. Um, well, I think this is the end of it. When he's waiting in her limousine and says, yeah. we need to talk, that's supposed to be quite a cliffhanger because you're wondering if, if this is going to bring him directly into conflict with Namor, that that's you know, the next chapter. But I don't believe he goes any further than this. He I don't think so either. And then there's a off-panel uh, decision or an explanation saying, yeah, I was able to convince him that I had no idea what my brother was doing because I was yeah, in. That, I was, that might have uh, been that. Anyway, so it comes to an end. Yeah. Or the, the plot thread doesn't go anywhere. Um, I think Burns started pursuing some other things. Maybe he had an intent to, to, to weave that into something, but it doesn't, what I remember. Well, listen, it's been about an hour and a half. Yeah. Is there anything think, else we need to cover? Now, here? the one thing, I'll, last thing I want to comment on is uh, we're getting, you know, like I said, we're, we ended the story, we're getting, we've been hinting at this Danny Rand thing and with Plant Man and this, the character of uh, Vestigar, or how you pronounce this, Plant Being. Uh, those characters, those, that race is apparently comes from the Iron Man book, the Iron Fist book yes. that Byrne worked on. So, and I think they are some type of interdimensional plant beings that they're they're they are uh, they are a, a, a enemy of Kunlun. Mm -hmm. So that's why that's coming in with the Danny Rand stuff. Because as you recall, when they opened up Danny Rand's coffin, it was full of some type of vegetation. We've ended our we've kind of ended our Mars stuff. We've ended the clone stuff. It was almost like a like a quick two issue to kind of explain Namorita's background. And now we're going to go full force into whatever the plant man is doing. So I kind of look forward to those issues. And then I, I think we've covered it. I think we've done a good job of covering. I'm, I'm good. Well, we'd like to hear what our, our listeners think. If you've enjoyed this analysis, we want to hear from you. You can always write to us at gotta get burned at gmail.com or faster uh, you can content on the facebook pages i've gone kind of off the deep end posting a bunch of teasers and and uh, i hope humorous or funny panels regarding the super scroll probably went way too too far no no, um, no it's but okay. i've been having lots of fun of you know snipping images and marrying them together so uh, if you enjoy that i'd like to know if you think it's too much let me know uh, but we'd love to hear some feedback from you, especially what you think of the series. Uh, we've got about maybe four more shows left now right. before we get to the end of Burns' run. And there's a couple more things that we're going to have to look at and address as well. Um, little side things that we could talk about, um, but nothing, nothing uh, as far as a main thread. And much to my surprise, my boom mic here that uh, I have a crane mic, a boom mic, that was a gift from you, uh, Tim. Yeah. It has uh, decided to come unclamped from the table, and it's tried twice now to fall off, so I'm going to have <laughs> We've got to end this. Otherwise, I'm going to have right. distracting noises. 
no worries. Well, um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, as always, I want to thank you, Kirk. It's always a pleasure to come on. And I want to uh, say for Third Degree Burn, I'm Tim Elliott. And I'm Kirk Greenfield. Thanks for listening. for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.